Hi everyone, it's Joey Remini from seekingbalance.com.au. Today I have a special guest and we are going to talk a lot about music. And for those of you who follow me and know me, you'll know that music's a really big part of my life. And today we're going to geek out and get a bit nerdy around the science of how music impacts the body and the brain. And my guest speaker is Alison Davies from alisondavies.com.au. And she is a music therapist or um, previously registered music therapist. And I've just been looking at your about section, Alison, and you've studied music formally. You've studied all sorts of different types of neurology and music. You're passionate about educating families, schools, um, groups, work groups around neurodivergence and understanding our brain and the powerful regulatory function of music. So you are very welcome in our community and I'm excited for this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited too. Can you tell us a little bit, maybe, Ali, what brought you, how's music touched you? How did you get that desire to want to study so deeply on music and the brain? How did you get to that place? Okay, well, it was never, a, I never had this drive or this passionate motivation that I wanted to be a music therapist or that music was going to be my life. Mm-hmm. But as a child, music was the one thing I was good at. Well, not the one thing, but it was the thing I was best at. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the thing I was celebrated for. So I received a lot of external validation mm-hmm. around my musicality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for someone who, unbeknownst to me at the time, is autistic mm. um, and who always felt a little bit like I'm not quite smart enough, I don't quite get it, what am I missing, um, to receive external validation is the ultimate um, sort of... Uh, Dopamine hit. <laughs> measure of value almost mm. it's that thing that I grabbed onto that it was like oh yes I'm worthy I'm valuable um and so when it came time to finish school and I still didn't know what I wanted to do I was like well let's just keep with music so I just sort of flowed into it however I will say that um as a child i obviously didn't know this at the time, but I used to think to myself all the time, music is keeping me alive. Mm. And I couldn't explain it any other way. But I felt when I wasn't having music or listening to music or playing music, um, it was very hard to be alive. And so I can look back on that now with my experience as a neurologic music therapist and recognise exactly what was happening Mm. in that music was supporting my regulation uh, it was allowing me when I wasn't experiencing music um, and I, this still happens to me if I'm in a state of sort of survival mode or at tough times, I will count um, internally in my mind in threes or fours constantly. I'm constantly counting. Uh, and that just that's just a thing that the brain does to help us, um, you know, stay in control, have some repetition, some predictability. It does it to help us. It's not a bad thing. Mm. Um, it can kind of get out of control sometimes. However, in and of itself, it's a it's a stimming action. It's a good, healthy thing that our brain's doing to help us re- um, regulate. But when I wasn't experiencing music as a kid, I was always counting. 
And I was always trying to make rhythms and I was always stimming. And then I'd listen to music and all of a sudden my brain could just switch off and none of those things happened. Mm-hmm. And and music was really giving me the sensory input that my brain was seeking to just function at its best in this world. Yeah. Um, and so it was like it gave me a break. Everything was less tiring. Everything was less exhausting when I was able to just enjoy or experience music. So for me, I had this real almost like a dependency on it um, as a as something in my life that was hugely not just something I loved but something that felt like it was keeping me alive. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that combined with just being all the external validation that I received around my musical gifts, mm. uh, that is what. That is what kept me going through. And then I was studying and studying and I just find study and research so fascinating. I would have studied forever if it wasn't university full of patriarchal <laughs> systems that are harmful. Um, I started doing a PhD last year and then I realised I was only doing it because I wanted to be called a doctor and it was all for the wrong reasons and it was all the, it was all the systems I was trying to get out of anyway. <gasps> Touche, I get that. Uh, yeah, but the more I've learned about music and the connection between music and the brain, the more fascinating it becomes and it's such a huge passion now. Mm. Um, and it's incredible. It blows my mind. The, we, yeah. we have no idea how powerful music is um, as a tool for the brain. Yeah. What you know. So I do, I, I've got so much to say about this and I feel like what annoys me with the patriarchal university PhD system, which, you know, I was also a part of and confronted with that choice, is I am so deeply fascinated about the complexity of being human that really having to dumb it down and narrow it down to one isolated study piece to me just doesn't make sense. It's like it's such an isolated scope that I think well done to people who can do that. And little by little, all of that information is scientifically growing us in in a um as a collective humanity collecting data, but I really love to look at the whole human, the whole complexity of it, and that's sort of how my autism comes through is I love connecting the dots and holding really big conversations and sitting in the mystery of what we don't know and what we don't need to know. And so that was where I um, came up to my edges of feeling uncomfortable in the university system, that it was the scopes were too narrow for me. I needed that to be able to sit in that mystery and hold it is an equally valid um, and important part of understanding our inner world. Um, And I wanted to also say, you know, from my, so if we talk about healthy brains and bodies, what I'm really exploring lately and my next book topic is on how do we digest invisible inputs, particularly the mental, emotional, spiritual, all that the ideas, feelings, emotions, thoughts, beliefs that are entering us all day long from the whole world, you know, it's Israel and Gaza, it's politics, it's, you know, it's intimate relationships, it's children. There's a lot coming in. How do we physically metabolize, integrate and digest that through our body and then have this excretion process, which I'm thinking is creative expression. It's dance, it's singing, it's moving. How do we move it out of us? And this is where Alison's conversation gives us a lot of tricks and tools about the science of why not only listening to music, but moving singing, creating are really powerful digestive processes. Yeah. 
Oh, I've got so much. All right. Woo, we can talk. <laughs> um, firstly, this reminds me of a question I was asked yesterday by someone. They said, what do you think about how do we process emotion? And so to start even unpacking that, I feel like we have to recognize that we've been sold a few lies by the wellness industry and the healing Mm -hmm. and the personal transformation industries. And I don't think that we need to be, I I think in fact, um, we don't always process emotions and we don't need to process emotions Uh, when we're experiencing emotion. uh, The brain is usually like either having emotions or having cognitive or being cognitive. So I think of it a bit like an accelerator and a brake. If mm. you can't really have them both on at the same time. So if you're if you're in your emotions, you're not necessarily going to be great at cognitively analyzing them and making sense of them, which is often what we think of when we're talking about processing emotions, making them make sense. Um and if we're being cognitive, like if we're having an interview right now, we're probably not feeling our emotions right now in this moment, even if we might be feeling just you know, we might be feeling tired or we might be feeling flat or, you know, everyone's feeling something right now because there's so many very, very traumatic things going on in the world. But whilst we're in a cognitive state, we're not actually moving the emotions through. So processing emotions is this thing that I think is a culture. We always want to make sense of everything, tie it up in a nice bow and give it a reason so that it, so that we don't feel silly about having that feeling and then we can move forward with it. Um, but it doesn't really have to work like that. And I think that's the harder way of doing it because, you know, as humans, we, we think that we know a lot, but we don't really. And also we don't need to. So we don't need to understand the emotions. We just need to know that we're humans and we will experience all of them. So there's literally energy. Emotion is literally energy in motion. There's no such thing as a positive one or a negative one. They're just all energies that will move through us. And so to your point about dancing and creating and moving and being and and doing, that is how emotions um, move through us. Mm. And in turn, avoid becoming pent up inside us and I really do like to just touch on this whole like I stand for something that's very humanistic and not sort of in the personal transformation vein of releasing emotions or getting rid of them to try and stop things we don't want to feel um I feel very much aligned with an idea of recognizing that we're going to experience all sorts of messy and things that feel good and feel very, very bad, they never stay as long as we allow them to move through our body. Not to minimise chronic, chronic um, emotional discourse because I I know that a lot of people feel like it will never move. So I don't want to minimise the pain that comes with that. But anything that ends with an ing, so if we're creating, dancing, jumping, moving, singing, um, you know, swinging, climbing anything that ends with an ing drawing painting yeah this is I had one so what I want to say is for listeners what our conversation is going to keep coming back to is when we know ourselves our brain our body the way we jive the way we experience the world and the way we personally metabolize that is a very individual um I want to say mature you know we're not we we figure this out as we grow up in life and 
it's really central to what the Rocksteady process is about. It's going, well, how do I experience emotions? And I show this um, picture, those who are on the podcast, it's just a, a colourful, swirly-whirly, sort of chaotic um, image. But I had big emotions and actually it was on the whole neurodivergent thing and coming up against neurodivergent dismissive conversations in parenting parental groups and stuff. And, God, it really just hit me and I had all these big emotions and my husband was actually coming in and trying to um, be cognitive with me. And I had to really respect the fact that I was highly stimulated. I had a lot of bigness, fireworks moving through my body and my being. He really wanted to give me eye contact and support me in a way that he wanted to deliver. And I just couldn't do the eye contact thing because I was just way too stimulated at that point. And I had to really be true to myself and stay with myself, give myself quiet time to literally stay in the emotional of feeling through it. And what happened for me was I I did this drawing because that was just sort of what was flowing at the time. But there have been many times in my life where I will pick up a guitar and write a song and I never perform it. I may not record it. It's not for anybody else. It's literally for the process of me staying in that emotional space of feeling through and, and it, at the end, once I get to the end of my process, my expression, my whatever I'm doing, it's quite playful really. It's deep and big feelings, but there's a childlike innocence to it. Um, at the end of it, I feel lighter. I feel refreshed. I feel I feel that that big energy has had a way to move through me. And that's not to suggest that's what other people will do, but that's they're things that have naturally supported me over the years. And I think this is really... Um, Maybe even, Ali, you could share some of your own ways of um, navigating that emotional and cognitive accelerator and break. I do. When I'm deeply in an emotional place, I do things that use my hands. And you would understand this. There's so many joints and there's so many. Moving our hands is such a, a highly proprioceptive experience mm. because we have so many joints and, and moving parts. And so and nerves so so using our hands actually gives our brain the proprioceptive input it seeks when it's dysregulated when it's grieving when it's in anxiety when it's confused when it feels out of control Um, and that just helps the brain I guess experience feel a bit uh, more organized and it helps it sort of Mm. through that stage Um, so I like to craft I like to hand stitch I like to collect things and thread things and I will forage mm-hmm. um, and forage herbs and dry them out. And so recently um, this year I've had a, experienced a great loss, my biggest loss and, and grief that I've ever experienced. Um, and during that time I really just crafted and used my hands the whole time. I just I collected hawthorn berries and then I threaded them with a needle onto a big string and I made strings of hawthorn berries and I I I I hand stitched prayer flags and you know just anything with my hands. Um I know that but from a musical perspective and I was going to say I know that a lot of people use physical activity like running. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who run kilometers every day mm-hmm. it's they're doing it they're probably doing it for lots of reasons, but it's extremely regulatory. Swinging on a swing. Yeah. I spoke, I remember a taxi driver telling me once that he had um, come to Australia. Uh, he'd been, he came from war 
and he came to Australia and he experienced extreme PTSD. Yeah. And he um, used to go down to the playground every night in the dark because he could never sleep and he'd just swing really high back and forth on the swing. And so, again, this is giving his body proprioceptive input. Mm. And, and, so, and vestibular input. And vestibular input by staying up on that swing. All the things he needs to sort of just remain calm in that time when it's the middle of the night and he's frightened and he can't sleep. Mm. Um And I just found it such a powerful self-awareness and recognition of what he needed to do to move emotions through him. And that helped him not become pent up so that then he could go and drive taxis again the next day. So he knew what he needed and it was a physical movement. Um, But in terms of music, what I love, so in a nutshell, I will say that when we're talking about music, melody goes hand in hand with emotions Mm -hmm. and rhythm goes hand in hand with physical movement. So if we're looking at moving emotions through our body, uh, melody is a really great tool because melody activates the limbic system, which then allows us to feel things. Um, And when we're just sort of listening to music, singing or um, experiencing music, even if it's just we don't have to be actively doing the music. So the science tells us that when we experience music by making it, listening to it or even thinking about it Mm -hmm. more of the brain becomes active all at the same time than it does when we experience anything else that science is yet to show us that is amazing like that's why they call music the full gym workout from a brain point of view yeah and it's just tapping all the different quadrant quadrants of the brain and also that brain body connection our body's also holding a receptivity to the music and i you carry on, but this just, it's really good for people, I think, to have an awareness of which music you're gravitating towards in your body. It's like your body is feeling perhaps nurtured or grounded or centered or excited. And some of those bigger emotions or untouched emotions, you may be able to explore more and play with more with certain playlists. Yes, playlists are a really great way of uh, creating or especially curating playlists to meet your own emotional needs is a really great way of doing it because we have the technology to do it and it really helps. So um, you don't have to have, so a lot of people just say you're feeling sad, angry, depressed, flat, any of those things, angry. A lot of people would automatically go towards making a playlist that has happy songs with lyrics that are motivational or inspiring to try and switch the mood. I tend to think of lyrics as the least, important part of music Mm. and what actually supports our body in this process when we're when we're having big feelings is to match it match the feeling with the music and then move the music to a place which matches where you want to move your emotion to and this is called in music therapy this is called the iso principle so if we're feeling angry for example or just say our kids are really angry Often we would we might want to come in with like the relaxation music, the insight timer and the guided meditation and the whale sounds, you know. But if we're up here in this heightened state of rage and then the music we're trying to connect with is all just like, you know. It's conflict. Yeah, it's conflict and we're not, it's not validating our emotion, which is important because when we feel emotions that we think are too big or too uncomfortable, we do often have shame. We, th- we have shame around feeling angry. We have shame around feeling 
hateful or spiteful or resentful. Mm. Um, and we shouldn't have to. So matching our emotion with our music is a great way of just validating it to start with. So I often listen to something heavy like System of a Down or just something like Rage Against the Machine or something that will match this big feeling. Mm. And then if you make a playlist that supports your feeling to move, you might start off with some heavy songs or fast songs or really loud songs to begin with and then the next song's a bit gentle and the next song's a bit gentle and all of a sudden you're, you're listening to music that's kind of the resting heart rate and without having to do any work, you have entrained with the music, you're, you physically have entrained with the music and your emotions have moved as well and yeah. you've gone from the top step of the ladder, step, 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 step down the ladder till you're on the ground. And and the other um, thing to, just to add in here, just to to flavor it, is it's also really okay to feel that anger and rage. Put your music on and step into a place of surrender, which is another really interesting, um, I think, experience to explore of enjoying that rage and anger, like really validating that I'm allowed to feel this. There's a lot to be angry about right now in the world, and I don't actually have to need to tone it down. And sometimes having that really sort of staring, walking into the pit of the fire or staring the monster in the face and really owning it and being there and being really in the thick of reality can also have a very soothing and balming effect. So, um, and that's just another way we can use music to hold that space and give our neurons enough time to feel it in the body, body scan, move, have the music, let the brain recognize I'm enraged, I'm furious and it's okay. We don't actually have to be in fight, flight, freeze, disconnect, associate when we're in big emotions. We can be in that optimal firing zone, compassionate, kind, aware, and fully pissed off. And that, I think, is that sacred anger that we're all intending to connect with because it's healthy. It's totally yeah. healthy. There is some research by done by an Australian music therapist called Professor uh, Katrina McFerrin. So she's done a bunch of research on when music can be damaging or harmful to us. Hmm. And what she's found is that if we stay for a long time in music that perpetuates a dark place for us, it can be detrimental. Um, but for the most part and for what you're talking to and for what the listeners here are going to experience and for most the most part for most of us we're going to recognize when it no longer feels good to be expressing that rage and that's when we get to move through and and not about rage because I think rage is a really healthy emotion um, but some some emotions especially when we're very shut down and flat mm -hmm. and in a very dark place perpetuate it but when we when we use our common sense and when we recognize what we need and we're using music to to allow it to move through us or to validate it or to move us to a, a place that we want to feel it's mm. it's very low risk like it's I it's just want to say I'm wondering if we should clarify a little bit here for listeners just the concept of bypassing and also yeah. what I would probably term I use in the Rock City program just any form of resistance when we don't want to feel what we feel. In other words, we are not ready for reality. Um, 
and it's okay to have these moments. Everybody has resistance and everybody uses bypassing. It's the, these are strategies that, that are sometimes really useful. But to have this awareness of am I really willing to feel through this and get curious about, okay, how is this feeling in my chest and my hips and my legs and really letting the whole body experience the feeling with willingness and observation and all of our body scanning curiosity. That's really different to putting music on as an escape or Perhaps you could even talk about catharsis, which I think is not so recommended. You know, it's sort of, um, it's got that element of agitation, resistance, fighting. I guess it's really buying into that fight, flight, freeze aspects as opposed to the optimal firing, curiosity, willingness. Do you want to speak a little bit about where it could be harmful or dangerous versus this very safe exploration, low risk? Yeah, I think for the most part, it's always going to be low risk and safe and important for us because yeah. the point of like um, bypassing emotion is that is when it becomes pent up inside us and that's when it becomes bigger and it takes it, it takes on mm-hmm. our body feel shut down and we experience dysregulation and more syn- more symptoms you know more tinnitus more and dizziness more-, more vertigo right and this is why this conversation is important and we need our people we need our tribe who we can talk to and have that those affirming conversations of hey i i, I experienced some big feelings and i stayed with it because so often in society it's poo-pooed it's diminished it's dismissed it's belittled too sensitive too dramatic we need our people and again that puts the brain in that place of I'm okay, this is safe. You know, if I have this emotion again, I'll be okay. Yeah, That's and powerful. You know, if we I feel like we're just going, we're flying. I feel like I just by, I've just bypassed your last point, but I've got something else I want to say. Go for it. Um, if we look at our ancestral um, knowledge and the way our ancestors use their voice. This is exactly what I was thinking about, what you're doing. Yeah, like if we consider grief for a moment. So as I said, I had a very special friend um, died very tragically recently Mm. and I realised for the first time, and I knew this theoretically but I hadn't experienced it myself, how our Western grieving is just so shit and so nothing and so not at all helpful. Dismissive, yeah. Yes, dismissive. And I wanted to, and I still do, I wanted to throw my body on the earth and wail and beat myself you know it's Mm. and that felt like the only healthy important respectful like best thing that I could possibly do but in our western world because we live in a very colonized society where we are taught we have been taught to be polite stay clean don't get dirty don't rock the boat um don't be too, too dramatic Um, we don't ever want to say the wrong thing we want to be very um whatever it is that the colony we're we're prim proper and groomed and actually it's healthy to follow that natural wild impulse of the body and go for it you know be interrupting be zealous and I think that's what autistic people are actually naturally better at um, because it hurts us to not speak up it literally keeps us awake at night and it's painful in our body whereas yeah, neurotypical people are better at holding it in and suppressing it for better or worse. You know, I don't think either is better or worse, actually. But following grief rituals in community where you are witnessed by your loved ones and your community members singing, wailing, drumming, dancing, storytelling about the sorrow, pain and loss, 
these are the rituals that we are needing to recreate in modern day society. And we have them in our Rocksteady group. We have monthly grief and soul circles where we get vulnerable and we witness each other. It's so, so precious. Yeah. It's extremely important that, you know, we all know there were no cultural exchange. There was no cultural exchange on these lands when they Mm. were, colonized so the wisdom of the people who've been here for over sixty thousand years and no matter what culture you're traditionally from they all had their traditional culture where the the grief the the voice work let's just talk about voice since we're talking about music today um you know but but that includes wailing and screaming and laughing and singing and exclaiming healthy hysteria and it was done in connection with the elements. So it was done with fire and smoke and water and earth and and dirt and wind, um, and all of the things that are there exist in the world that we exist in conjunction with, that we can tap into to healthily reclaim our ourselves as humans and and experience connectedness and love and safety through yeah. our connection with the earth and and, and our community. Uh, and no matter which way we use, we try and express our emotions these days, one of the number one rules is do it privately. You know, you don't mm. do it in the workplace. You don't do it. Which has, we pay the cost of that. We pay the cost of doing it alone. And, you know, I think when we can have this um, healthy sort of communally witness, and even if that's just two people, when the brain feels seen and heard in those big sorrows, pains and emotions, the brain again gets that social validation that I'm safe. The tribe won't kick me out. I can feel this. I can fire all those neurons. I can activate all those maps of pain and grief and I can feel through it. I can complete the neurochemical process and I'm okay. And that's, I think, what our culture is missing. And my lived experience of exploring this is I feel more alive. I have more vitality. I have more vibrancy. I don't personally experience symptoms anymore. So my sensory um, neurological maps are much more balanced and I feel less fatigued, drained and numb. It's like there's a, there's a real numbing of shutting down and not feeling or sort of trying to squeeze it into the private life at the end of the day, which, you know, who has time for that anyway? So there's, there's a lot going on here and I think coming back to music, you know, I'm even thinking about, you know, music in the car, singing in the car, singing in the shower. How can we actually find ways to be connected to our emotional life, emotional world, allow the brain that juicy time to process, integrate, metabolize, to drop into that feeling body? Um, when we're busy, we're working, there's children, there's life. Yeah. Well, one of the great things about music being a tool that the that that helps the brain become active is that we only need moments of music for mm-hmm. it to happen. So we don't have to be able to sit down for a half hour session or a one hour listening to an album or a you know a jam session or anything like that or even music lessons. You know, we don't have to. We can just have moments. We can experience moments of music all throughout the day. And often we do unawares to us, but we can do more of it. And singing in the car, singing in the shower, those types of things feel really safe um, and allow us to express our musicality with an enhanced level of freedom that we don't often have, say, if we're walking through the supermarket and the radio is playing, we're not going to sing as loudly or dance as crazily as we would if we were in the shower. Mm. Um 
However, there's this other sort of element of, of this that I'm really passionate about, which is recognising the music that is already inside us mm. and allowing that to be expressed and to come through. Because for most of us, we think of music as an, as an external thing that we learn or that we're taught. Um, and a lot of people don't even believe they're musical. Now, the, the brain is a musical organ. So to be human is to be musical. There's no doubting that. Um, but because of these sort of culture and society that we live in that, that like I said at the beginning, celebrates what they consider good music, and good music is based around a Western scale, so it's all very modern and colonised. This, this shouldn't be what represents good music, but in our society it just is. So when we sing in tune, when we, when we have a certain pitch and certain tone and we can read music, we're classified as like musical. And so a lot of people who's, and it could be as much, and it's often the case, it's also very classist. So it's often the case that families whose, for example, parents couldn't afford piano lessons for their kids, maybe, um, then they didn't have music lessons and so they go through life thinking they're not musical. And it's insane to think that it's just the the families who are privileged enough to be able to access things like music lessons or singing lessons other ones whose children can grow up believing that they are musical. So that's a whole nother story. But the thing is every single person is musical, yeah. but we don't and we don't have to reach for it externally. It doesn't have to come from the radio or the, the music or the performance that we're watching or listening to. It's already inside us. And if we can like tap into or really just safely, it takes time, mm-hmm. um, and there are so many barriers as to to our relationship with our musicality and our relationship with our voice is very um, burdened by um, con- deeply Shame. conditioned stuff that tells us we're not good enough. Shame, yeah. Um, but when we can meet our voice and meet our musicality, um, f- again, as if we're meeting it for the first time and develop a relationship with it, we realise that we have melody inside us wanting to come out and we have rhythm inside us wanting to come out. And that might just come out in in the pace that we're walking if we go for a walk and we just consciously sort of turn inwards and we find ourselves creating a rhythm just with the, the movement of our feet. Yeah. Uh, and that pulse then, the brain responds to it and, and our heart rate slows down, our respiratory rate slows down and we're experiencing physiological safety because we have just allowed this internal musicality to come through. Yeah, and I just, I, I love the term cadence, you know, finding, take pausing to look inward and go, what is my frequency? What is my vibration right now? What is my cadence? And it's not about the external or the performance. And I think it's really important to notice when am I trying to do things to please other people, to get a response in other people versus when am I just going inwards to see what's alive, what's moving, what's expressing. And I think musical expression, which you talk about this really beautifully, Ali, you know, could be clicking, could be clapping, could be lip trilling, could be blah. Like, you know, it doesn't need to be beautiful. It doesn't need to have any tone. It doesn't need to follow western key structures you know you don't need any of that academic theory it really is experimenting with and kids do this beautifully toddlers in particular it's like so I've got this instrument I've got this body what am I capable of and my boys will literally just sort of scream and tone and they're just exploring what they can do and I don't stop them I just think how beautiful they're figuring out their instrument and I also wonder if 
because I give them that airtime to be so random and eccentric and loud, they don't need to cry as much. They're actually allowed to, to move and be noisy and feel that vibration in their body in a way that's um, uninhibited and not judged or shaped. Yeah, and this is one of the most important parts in breaking the cycle of shame around voice because that's when it starts it starts when we're babies and toddlers Mm. because for the most part and it's not happening as much now like you've just so beautifully explained in your experience but for many of us our parents and their parents and their parents said things like um children should be seen and not heard be quiet the adults are trying to speak if you have nothing nice to say don't say anything at all and i can't understand you i'm so sick of the sound of you things like that don't and cry, so, stop crying, stop whinging. Yeah, stop crying, suck it up, yeah, harden up. So from very early on, we because when we're children, our, our primary caregiver is our means of survival and the brain's only job is to keep us alive. And then later on in life it wants us to um, procreate, you know, reproduce. But other than that, it just wants us to stay alive. So when our parents say things to us about our voice that's negative or tell us to be quiet or tell us to stop mumbling or stop this or stop that around our voice. Mm. Our brain tells us very early on that using our voice is a potential risk to our attachment with our primary caregiver. So essentially we're learning that using our voice can be damaging. And then, you know, we go through life and and quiet children are often called good kids and noisy kids are often called difficult kids. And that whole, that it just keeps perpetuating this idea that noise, um, the noise that we make using our voice uh, is somehow representative of whether we're good enough or not good enough. And then we get to adolescence and often our voices are mocked when we try and speak up and say who we are and what we want and what we need. And then... So we have this very um, we have this very traumatized relationship with our voice. No one ever taught us our voice was our ally. Our voice is our identity in sound. No one has the same voice. Mm. No one taught us how to look after our voice or what it's there for. But then all of a sudden we get to adulthood and we're expected to be able to have difficult conversations, advocate for ourselves and our kids, say no, stand up for ourselves, say what we mean. And so we've gone through life with this traumatic relationship that's been shunned and suppressed, and then all of a sudden we're expected to be highly skilled at using it. And everything about all of this just makes it a a risk to use our voice. Our nervous system says, no, voice is a risk. Uh, and so we feel unsafe. We often feel unsafe about using our voice. And this isn't just in singing and music. This is in saying what we want, saying who we are, um, not people pleasing anymore. Even conversations with our most safe people can be confronting and difficult. And well, so you, it's a it's massive. Mm. It's and you know going back to that example I gave yesterday, where I, I drew the picture and my husband came in and he wanted to sort of. Um, check in with me and support me and I really didn't want eye contact or talking it's like my whole body body was going into almost a mini shutdown like I just needed 20 minutes to myself or whatever it was brave and courageous for me to hold that line and really honor my body instead of people pleasing and giving my husband what he wanted and needed 
And, you know, and I think it takes a lot of building that trust both in oneself and one's body and that inner world experience. And then also trust in the relationship of whoever we're with, whether it's our peer group and friends or our children or our parents or husband, having trust that the relationship can handle some of those um, ruptures or advocacy that it's okay to speak up for my needs and people will still love me even if my needs are a bit weird. And it was actually a really beautiful experience for me because it was probably one of the first times I really let myself go, you know what, eye contact is not what I need right now. I would be forcing myself to engage with someone else to please them. And, you know, 20 or 30 minutes later and I was I was back in my regulatory zone and I'd I don't even, I wouldn't say I, I um, dysregulated too much. It was more just I needed personal space to be through big feelings and that's the way I do it. And finding our voice is so clunky. I turned 40 this year and, you know, it's something I'm still deeply fascinated about, this whole self-advocacy thing, honouring oneself, because in in essence it's, it's contrary to the cultural norm. <laughs> We're trained to be people pleasers and to follow groupthink and follow social cohesion rules, which make no sense. Yeah, especially women. And I know that's a very gender stereotypical, um, you know, observation. There's layers, there's layers yeah. And for men, um, they, there's this there's this lifelong thing about not expressing your emotions. And for us, it's yeah. don't talk to say what you don't ask for what you need and don't be over dramatic and over emotional and, you know, um, so where where all humans are uh, working through problematic relationships with our voice, and so when it comes to doing something like singing, where even which we usually think is harder than speaking, or less, we're less worthy of singing if we don't believe we're musical. Then there's even more layers of shame around using our voice for singing. But the interesting thing is that singing is actually easy, an easier function for the brain to do than speaking. Um, it uses way more brain. It activates way more brain. So when we speak, there's just two parts of the brain that are really dominantly activated and they're both on the one side of the one hemisphere mm. um, and they're just sort of in charge of our expressive speech and our receptive speech, which is knowing what words to use. Um, but when we sing, both hemispheres become active and this big melodic centre and the limbic system's active because we're singing, we're using melody. Um, so then it makes it easier for our brain to integrate and respond and react and, and get back to some sort of semblance of, of the, the functioning that we want it to have so that we can feel good. Um, so singing is actually easier from a physiological perspective and speaking also speaking in again in our western world we have this expectation that speaking should be cognitive and should be sensible and make sense and that's really hard um, let's just say it like it is people it's really hard to make sense all the time <laughs> oh yeah yeah um, so singing is easier so give yourself grace and allow yourself to sing it does not matter how it sounds because no one else cares mm. and it's just this deep sense of i'm not musical enough uh, that holds us back from expressing our musicality. Um, but the simpler the music yeah. that we express, the more the brain likes it and the safer we will feel in our body. So simple, 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 like nursery rhyme style melody. That's what mm -hmm. the brain wants. It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be um, 
Fancy. No, not fancy. So I want to redirect the conversation to one of your hot topics, which I think is really worth um, fleshing out a little bit, which is from that regulation point of view. So my listeners will understand quite a bit about the fight, flight, freeze and the midbrain and the limbic system and, you know, to regulate ourselves, we want to access more parts of the brain. We want to get into the frontal and prefrontal cortex, the somatosensory and motosensory areas. We want the brain pinging in all sorts of directions to help us feel more connected, more centered, more grounded. And something Ali has taught me, which I think makes so much sense, is that literally the act of hearing our own voice. So right now my ears are picking up on my vocal tone, my vocal imprint, footprint, fingerprint, and that gives my emotional body a sense of self, a sense of place, a sense of safety, a sense of um, predictability, a sense of control, a sense of certainty. So by actually hearing my own vocal waves come through my ears and back into the brain, so it's this circular thing, I'm getting the vibrations of my vocal cords right now through my body. I'm getting to hear it. I'm getting to feel it. Um, All of that provides us with a sense of safety and ground and connection. And a lot of what we're aiming for in life is feeling safe and connected. And how interesting that literally speaking aloud can can be a pathway to explore that. So do you want to speak a little bit on that, Ali? Yeah, the brain loves the sound of our own voice because it knows it so well. It knows, you know, my brain right now is going, oh, that's our voice. (laughs) I've known, you know, over 40 years where this is, this voice is safe. I know what it means. I know what the different intonations, what they mean. If my voice is shaking, I know I'm feeling confronted. If this is happening, I know I'm feeling this. So it's a, our voice is a really great input for our brain because it knows exactly how to tell the body to respond next. Mm. Um, and also when we hear our own voice, like you said, so when I hear your voice or any other person's voice, I'm just hearing it through my ears. Mm. When I hear my own voice, I'm experiencing internal bone conduction inside my head. I'm experiencing different vibrations within my body. So, and especially within my face, my nose, my sinuses. Um, so when we use our own voice and that that old saying that speaking out loud is the first sign of, is a sign of crazy or whatever that um, phrase is. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking out loud is not the first sign of being crazy. Um, it's very, very healthy and we should be speaking out loud more. And so I do this by reading out loud to myself. Mm. reading out loud to my kids sometimes I read out loud to my husband um singing out loud so if I find myself singing along to a tune in my head sometimes it's nice to keep it in my head and that also activates the brain Mm. but you know sometimes I'm like let's get that out so singing it out loud gives just you know it just allows my brain then to have this extra medicinal it's not actual medicine, so don't quote me on that, but it's like it's a very potent, powerful form of um, s- control and safety that my brain is allowed to experience just by hearing my voice. And then there's stuff like also when we do speak, mm-hmm. our brain interprets that as, oh, we're in, a pa- we're, we're in a certain position of power right now or in a certain position of control, especially, <laughs> if, especially if we're being listened to. 
you know, and public speakers, there's there's signs that say how public speakers love the sound of their own voice. But I, I think what they really are referring to is that the safety and the the in control that they feel because our brain interprets us speaking and everyone else is listening as us being in a space of control, which we we often are when this is a, when that's the situation. So our brain can tell a lot about our actual safety in the world, which impacts um, our survival mode or our sense of regulation and our anxiety and our mm-hmm. physiological state just by hearing our voice. And, and so the- singing out loud, I like to sing lullabies. I like to sing lullabies to myself. Anything that is soothing is going to support the nervous system. So anything that you would do musically with a newborn baby, do it to yourself and your adult friends and your partners and your older kids because we do everything we do musically for a newborn, we do because we inherently know it will allow them to feel soothed and safe. Mm. And so singing a lullaby to yourself in lullaby voice, it can be intimate and whispery. It doesn't have to be strong and you don't have to project your voice like you would in the choir. Just intimate and gentle and sway very gently and sing slowly and all of the things that we would inherently do with a newborn without thinking twice about our musical performance. Yeah. And you've just what we you've just hit, you've just hit the nail on the head which is that we know what we need. It's such an innate and wild impulse. I was actually roller skating last night and at one point the teacher went just don't overthink it. Like you will just do it. And it's it's the same with being with a newborn baby for the most part. When we feel like we're the in-control adult and we want to really support, reassure and co-regulate that infant, we will really naturally sway or caress or hum a little tune or even just speak in a slower, more reassuring vocal tone. And none of that's because we've read academic textbooks on how to regulate. We just know as a human being. And the flip side, when we look at our beautiful children, babies, toddlers, They also know how to move all of that internal tension and stresses of the day through their body. And a a great example, I've shared this with you before, Ali, but it just, it was so cute. My three-year-old asked me to read um, Harry McClary from Donaldson's Dairy, but he gave me the ukulele and told me to sing it. So we got out our C, G and F chords and we were singing Harry McClary. And when we got to the Scarface Claw, the toughest Tom in town, Literally, my three-year-old had psychotic features. His eyes lit up and he was roaring. And I thought, okay, you've got something inside to release. And it was all fun and beautiful, but he was really guiding what his body needed to process his day. And I think those natural impulses are there and it's important we don't suppress our own impulses. And um, then we we potentially can allow more of that expression in our children so they don't lose it and they don't get overly shaped and stifled, which, you know, it's a new generational gift, I think, to the younger people on the planet. Yeah, children are already doing it really well. So just witnessing them and mm-hmm. us trying to be more like them in the way we release emotion and use our voice and sing and mm-hmm. all children know that they are musical. If I went into a if I went into a kindergarten mm-hmm. and said put your hand up if you're musical, every hand would go up. But if I went into like a grade 6 class and said put your hand up if you're musical, only the ones who have music lessons or have mm-hmm. some sort of 
you know, natural talent that's considered a natural talent, um, only a select number of hands would go up. So they do, they do, it's this deep conditioning and the narrative that we have in the world around what's musical and what isn't that really starts to tap that musicality out of, not, not tap it out of them, but allows them to feel that they're not good enough at it. Mm. And so it's the little ones still have it. Let's be more like the little ones. And if they witness us expressing our musicality in any which way it comes out without any focus on it being in tune or sounding good, they will continue to recognise that musical expression isn't based on a value or an external validation. And that's one of the ways that we can change this cycle of, of people growing up to believe that they're not worthy of, of expressing their musicality because they're not good yeah. at it. Or that it's dangerous to express oneself in socially unaccepted ways, quote, unquote. But there's yeah. that that fear around what will people think or even will I judge myself if I start to, you know, birthing? God, the sounds that came out of my body while birthing, it was just amazing and it was confronting for me to hear those really guttural, deep sounds that I hadn't really accessed outside of being in labour. And so it's that whole thing of being gentle with ourselves as we hear what's coming out of the body through um, these bigger feelings, yeah. Absolutely. And we can practice that by doing things like going on a rage walk <laughs> or like finding a safe place to howl, howling at the moon, you know, yeah. uh, wailing. And actually getting on the ground and beating the ground and crying loudly, we can practice that stuff yeah. so that when we are in places where we feel like we're in turmoil, we already have some sort of idea of how we can do it. Um, these are new practices to us. They're not new practices to humanity and our ancestors uh, use their body and their voice and their music uh, consistently and mm. and in ways that were designed to help them and to regulate um and so it's not too late for us to reclaim that skill we just need to start practicing it and there's no getting it wrong either mm -mm. there's no getting it wrong as long as you're using your voice and expressing your emotion vocally or expressing the music that's inside you just mm -hmm. allowing like a tune to drop in just sort of consciously sort of closing your eyes and going is there a tune here? And then just start singing it because there will be one yeah. and it doesn't have to be a fancy tune. Um, whenever I do this activity with people, almost always the melody that's inside us asking to come out is extremely simple and extremely repetitive. It might just be one phrase and it just goes over and over. And that's the kind of stuff our brain and our nervous system loves because it's simple, it makes sense, it resolves, it feels uh, we don't have to analyse it, it's repetitive, so it's predictable, it's just mm -hmm. so safe. So just allowing yourself to be musical from a very, very simple place mm. does incredible things for our body. Mm, totally. And just bringing it also back into what might feel achievable and doable, go with that. And I know in our program I encourage a lot of tapping and actually talking through some of the things you might be journaling or unpacking from the mental clutter. Tapping is great because it's got that vocalization component and staying present with touch. But also another handy trick that you may want to play with, which includes the voice, is audio recording. 
um, some of your journaling or things that you're working through and then actually clicking play and listening back in, which I think is also if speaking is holding space and powerful, listening is actually accessing healthy level of vulnerability and the stronger and more centred and grounded we feel, I think the better we are at listening and the more vulnerable we are but um, perhaps not feeling okay with that vulnerability, the more we probably want to interrupt and speak and take over. Um, And neither of those things are sort of good or bad, right or wrong, but I think practice speaking aloud and listening to yourself and notice how that also gives the brain a nourishing bath of you and that self-exploration, self-understanding. And if you want to include a little melody or clapping and walking, and it's just taking it to those next levels of exploration. I'm wondering, Ali, any, any closing words of encouragement for someone who might be thinking, okay, and I think we maybe you and I could have a go at giving a bit of a, a mantra today, just see what comes out. But to anyone who might be wanting to play with the humming, the singing, but feeling like, ooh, any little words of encouragement perhaps there? For me, it's just keeping it as literally simple as possible and you're going to think you're not doing it right and you're going to think that you're not musical enough because it's so simple. Because music, the complexity of music is just because we design this system that that shows off how clever you are if you can be more complex. But it's the simple thing that the brain really loves. So even two notes, you know, for example, the, the, the melody that comes to me when you just said that is, I am safe, I am safe, I am safe, and that's it. You know, over and over and over and over. And that's hot cross buns. It's the kind of thing we would sing to a newborn. Mm. It's the most simple. It's a powerful tune. It's simple. It's repetitive. Um, it Every word in I am safe is straight to the point. I'm not writing a whole song about why I want to feel safe. I'm just getting straight to the point. Mm. And rhythm is sort of very restful rhythm, almost resting heart rate pulse. You could sing that as you walk. It's not something fast or disjointed that changes. It's just if you sang something like that over and over, it would really help you get into that hypnotic feeling of that, that heavy, safe feeling that you get in your body mm-hmm. and you would find yourself just gently swaying side to side. And so the more simple, the better. Mm. It's like the, the overriding number one tip. Love it. Thank you. And for those of you who are in my Facebook group, let us know if you're playing with this and trying this. We'd love to just, I suppose, share that journey. And I'm just going to drop in and reflect in now of what, hmm, what's coming through for me when I kind of listen to the pulse of my body is something like, my voice is my ground my voice is my ground my voice is my ground my voice and then i can hear harmonies my voice is my ground my voice is my ground so that's what's come to me in this moment but really just giving all listeners permission to give it a go and it's like I'm shaking a bit because it's it's activating. It's vulnerable. Yeah. I call these melodic mantras um, mm. because that's 
it's the melody is what allows the melody that we're singing is what allows emotion to move through us. Mm. The rhythm we're creating is regulating our physicality. So it's just keeping us grounded in the space mm. and the repetition of it. And the mantra is that it's just, you know, one phrase. It's not a song. It's not, it's not lyrics really even. It's just truths. Yeah. Um, and the repetition is what helps us feel safe and helps the brain feel in control and it knows what's coming next. And so it collaborates with the nervous system and says, hey, yeah. relax. So it's simple, simple, simple. Powerful. And, you know, something I just want to sort of weave in because this, this has been in our whole conversation, but I sort of want to leave listeners with something else Ali talks about, which is really interesting, is that an observation of how we're living in the world at the minute is there there is a lack of sensory input in many ways you know the way playgrounds are so like litigious and safe and we're not getting as much proprioceptive and vestibular input and some children and families will actually be deprived of music there won't be much music in their environment as well and our brain thrives off that healthy input of swinging on the swing and spinning and cartwheels and handstands and touch and being scratched by the prickly moses and you know getting dirty and getting into the mud and it's impacting us as humans and how we identify how we enjoy our body how we neurologically develop to not have adequate sensory stimulation. And so just thinking about that as you go through your rock steady process and as you explore your symptoms and your sensory world, maybe your body is literally screaming at you for a wider variety of inputs. So just really thinking about that, you know, getting textural, getting into different movements in whatever safe way you can and expanding yourself musically for all of those nourishing inputs. Thank you so much. Ali, do you want to let people know how they can best connect with you if they want to follow you and your channels? Sure. If you just search for Alison Davies, you will find me on. So Alison Davies Music in the Brain is my Facebook and Instagram accounts and YouTube. Um, And if you you look up alisondavies.com.au, you will find my website and that's where I have lots of resources. I have programs. We do, I have a gathering of voices, which is where we do melodic mantra work together each Mm. week Um, and have programs and lots of free stuff as well. And Mm. um, just lots of opportunities to, to learn more about the musical gifts you already have. And I also talk a lot about autistic culture as a autistic woman and an ADHD. um, You'll hear me talk about music and you'll hear me talk about, neurodivergence yeah which is really important and i'm really bringing that forward in our community too that whether you're neurodivergent or not i think it's so potent for more neurotypical people to understand what it means to live in a world that's shared with neurodivergent people because we are we're a collective and we need to learn how to listen to each other and respect difference and to not be afraid or have shame associated with difference so that's why talking about it I think is really nourishing for everyone. And just one more shout out that if you are a parent and you have children and you might have high energy kids or difficulty connecting with your kids, Alison has a lot of really beautiful resources and tools for a little bit like me singing with my three-year-old and getting that um, musical connection through reading books. There's lots of tricks and tips on how you can explore new ways of connecting with your children, um, which will be a benefit to the whole family. 
Yeah. Thanks so much, Ali. Oh, I've had a great conversation. Keep up your um, beautiful work. You know, I think the world really needs autistic people. <laughs> I think it's really valuable how we actually um, connect dots and have different perspectives and we see the world differently. And I think that's for a reason. I think every village and tribe needs certain members who actually step back and see the world differently and offer lateral ways of being in the world. And um, I really want to be celebrating of neurodivergence. Um, there's a place for everyone and every brain on this planet. Yeah, absolutely. And autistic culture supports everyone because it's just about living in a way that supports our or accommodates our needs without it being shameful. And so it doesn't matter who you are, autistic or not, that culture uh, is going to benefit every person. Totally. The more I read about it, the more I love it. And it just so speaks my language. And Rocksteady is very much an autistic culture where it's kindness, it's non-judgment, and it's really celebrating difference and eccentricities. I just think it's it's wild and wonderful. So thanks for all um, you bring. And for those of you who want to connect with my community, visit seekingbalance.com.au. It's a bye for now. And thanks for listening.